Hello, friends. Welcome to Happy Tears. I'm Brandon. And I am Nick, and this is Happy Tears, a podcast where two sensitive boys talk about the art that they love so much so that it often brings them to tears. Today on the podcast, we revisit two albums that had their 10th anniversary just in the last week or so. Both of them were released on May 18th, 2010. First, the Black Keys landmark album, Brothers, which was a breakthrough record for them and launched them into the upper echelon of modern rock and alternative music. And then Janelle Monae's first feature length album, The Arc Android, a sci-fi, pop, R&B, funk, rock, abstract concept record that spans genres and themes and centers around a Ziggy Stardust-like alter ego named Cindy Mayweather. These albums have virtually nothing in common other than a release date and the fact that they're both really, really good. So come along with us. This is Happy Tears. Uh, so normally on the podcast, we start off with our uh, weekly recommendations of things we're watching and listening to. We are actually going to move that and try something new, and you'll hear more about that stuff later, either on social or in our, our podcast feed. And today, we're just going to dive right into it. We're going to get down and dirty real quick. Love that. And dive into, this is a podcast called Happy Tears. Today, we are discussing an album, and that album is called Brothers. I'm trying to sound like the album artwork of the album Brothers, if that doesn't register to listeners. I hope it translates. <laughs> Maybe I'll just leave all this explanation. <laughs> Brothers is the sixth album from fuzzy blues rock duo, The Black Keys, comprised of guitarist and vocalist Dan Auerbach and drummer Patrick Carney. The album debuted at number three on the Billboard 200 and their lead single, Tighten Up, spent 10 weeks at number one on the Alternative Songs chart and peaked at number 87 on the Billboard Top 100. Brothers was nominated for five Grammys, winning two for Best Alternative Music Album and Rock Performance by a Duo or Group. And it's probably noteworthy to mention that this band formed in 2002 and had released five albums prior to Brothers. And some critics had begun to suspect that the Black Keys had reached a plateau of sameness in their music, recycling and reimagining the same blues rock guitar riffs over and over. Those notions were shattered with the release of Brothers, a fresh, vulnerable, surprising, and groovy album that still contained the Black Keys' signature fuzzy guitar licks and muddy drums. Brothers released to widespread critical acclaim and became their major breakthrough to a wider audience. They've released three albums since to general acclaim and won two Grammys since as well. Personally, I love this album, although as a singles boy, I've only listened to a few tracks that I love kind of ad nauseum over and over and over. Songs like Everlasting Light, Tighten Up, until this week when uh, you know we did this deep dive for this podcast. And so having never listened to the Black Keys early albums or really the most recent stuff, I ask you, Brandon, is this the Black Keys best album? Oh man, <laughs> I think it's their last really good album. Wow. Uh, the last three I 
have not um, enjoyed nearly as much uh, as this one. So I'm confident in saying that. And, and their best, it's so hard because I feel like it's in such a different category than their previous. I actually really love their first three albums and kind of the sound. I, I don't think like they might not all be super strong, full albums, but I really love a lot of the energy and garage rock loudness and stuff of the first the first few albums um but i think as a as a great release and kind of venturing more into the mainstream and kind of having a poppier uh rock sound i think this was a really great step in the right direction for them and the last time i think it really succeeded at doing that so you think when they cleaned it up the more they cleaned it up the more the magic they lost i just think this is kind of sits right in the middle of still having some of their old uh they kept the grit of some of their older releases and like kind of the stompiness, I think still translated on this record. But I think the cleaner and poppier production and kind of whole aesthetic of this record benefited them because they, I, I do agree they were kind of hitting a, a plateau of their, you know, the sound that they were known for from the beginning. You know, some of that's to Danger Mouse's credit here with some of the production work. And then it's also just some, some really solid, songs and and writing that translated really well as singles propelled them into you know like you said the upper echelon of the the rock genre and alternative genre have you been a uh black keys fan a1 since day one not since day i think day one there was uh they were that must have been i think it was back in like 2002 is when they released their first album yeah and so I don't think since then. Definitely sometime between then and Brothers, though. It was probably, I didn't like Magic Potion and Attack and Release as much, but that was probably around the time when I started getting into them and it was working my way kind of back into some of their older records, but their sound was just pretty fun and exciting and just real, you know, dirty. They were always a a cool band to me. And when Brothers came out in 2010, it was right before I wrapped up my senior year of high school. And I remember this particularly being one of the soundtracks to the, the summer and driving around in my truck in the summer and stuff. So it was a really, I have very specific memories with this album. Similarly with the Arc Android as well, but having, having both CDs and playing them quite a bit in my car before I went off to college. Yeah, I kind of missed the Black Keys pretty much my whole life. You know, it, it wasn't until the last 2013 or 14 that I dove into specifically this album and really liked it. And like I said, took the three tracks that I was like obsessed with and and put them on a playlist and listening to this album in the last week or two, this album's full of really, really great earworm tracks. And what I, what I love most about, you know, a song like tighten up, which only made it to 87 on the, on the billboard 100, but it's still a blues rock song, I think at heart. And when, when songs like that, can break into the the pop sphere because they're just so undeniably good. It's just a good reflection of how good they can be and uh, what a good record this is. It 
it's a really smart move having this kind of whistle melody at the beginning. So obviously, it's super catchy and quite different from what they'd previously released again. But another one that I, I really enjoy. And at times, I just wish the drums maybe sounded a little bigger in the first half of the song. But I really, really love the, the way it's constructed. I think this is an example of an almost perfect song. I think everything from the opening whistle to that guitar riff, the I think the lyrics are so simple but effective. The, the verses are like three lines each. Something about the way Dan Auerbach sings on this, it just, it's so kind of matter-of-factly mournful and it's so damn catchy. Like I said, it's when a song that is not a pop song becomes pop because it's just that good and that popular. That's, that's my favorite type of pop music, right? It's just songs that are undeniably good. And I think that this is a great example of that. I think you've already, you covered this as kind of a joke here, but I think that the, one thing that might be fun to start off with is how the album cover was kind of unique at the time. And I think it definitely was recognizable and contributed to their, whether it was just a, you know, helped with marketing or was really noticeable on iTunes and stuff because it was so different from the typical album covers of the time. I love this album cover. Yeah. And it great. is a, an homage to, I, I think, a Lightning Hopkins album cover, if I remember correctly, but it's, um, or no, sorry, Howlin' Wolf. Howlin' Wolf's album is a 1969 record that says, this is Howlin' Wolf's new album on the front in kind of a similar a similar way, so. Oh, wow, I didn't a, know that, but, but yeah, I'm looking at it. This is Howlin' Wolf's new album. He doesn't like it. He didn't like his electric guitar at first either. That's awesome. <laughs> Isn't that great? Yeah, I love that. And actually, funny enough, in that same kind of lineage influenced, uh, Notes on a Tribe Called Quest, Hanif and Barakib, album cover that he just either got nominated or won some award for. I think he won for a for the design of the cover specifically. So yeah, that's that's super cool. So you wanna start with right off the bat here with just diving into the first track? I love everlasting light. Yeah, I agree. I, I think it sets a really awesome tone with him coming in of that falsetto and being something pretty different from their work that kind of just tells you they're kind of starting off in a new direction here. But I think it's a great intro track. Yeah, because from what I've read that the falsetto was a totally new thing for them, right? Like they didn't really do that much or at all on their previous records. Is that true? Yeah. I, I would say for them, I mean, you might be able to pick out occasionally, but I don't, none of them come to mind. It just sounds cool. I love the kind of plodding guitar riff that just kind of grooves. It's just fun. I agree. Great start to that album with the, that has the pretty killer run of first tracks here. Howlin' For You kind of has this stadium stomp uh, vibe to it. It's like jock jams. <laughs> Yeah, but somehow it works. I love it. I think one of the really interesting things that they do is have this like the two different uh, guitar sounds doing kind of a call and response from left to right. I must admit, I can't explain any of these thoughts racing through my brain. It's true. 
I love how minimal this song is. You know, you've got that guitar kind of going back and forth, the call and response thing. You've got that, it's just like the constant kind of jock jams, stadium drums. And the, the verses are, are like two or three lines again. It's, they're so minimal. And then the chorus is just da 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 das. Right, right. <laughs> but it's, it's just so undeniably good. You know, not being able to speak too much on earlier albums from these guys, but I did listen to the previous album, Attack and Release, and then I listened a little bit to the to the very next album. There's just something to me about this one that just like, they just found a sweet spot. There's just some magic in, in how it, it's so true to their roots of, of you know, the blues rock style, but they've just captured something that's just catchy as hell and uh, without sounding not like themselves. I agree. I remember actually I went to Bonnaroo in the summer of 2010 and saw them on, it wasn't like the smallest stage, but it, was, it wasn't one of the bigger stages and decent sized crowd. But they're, I think on the lineup, they're probably down on line five or something. And then uh, just the following year, I went to Bonner again in 2011, and they were one of the headliners. So it was a quick rise for a band that had already been around for a while. Yeah, so. for sure. The um, reading a little bit about their kind of slow ascent into stardom, right? Like five albums over the course of eight years or so had, you know, and they, it, it was it was the classic band climbing up the ladder thing you know they had a, a decent first album and opened for bigger bands for years and years and then and then they had the one that broke right yeah i'd, I'd love to hear your thought on this because i have some thoughts of like kind of how the album flows as a whole and then putting so much so like many of the singles and so much up front and having a style change if you think that was a kind of a smart move or yeah so you're right this all the all the firepower is up front, right? Like the, right. These, these songs hit hard, and I I like them a lot. Um, and I still think I like most of the songs on this. I don't know if there's any song that I just dislike. There may be a few that that I'm slightly less interested in. Yeah. And, and I think towards the second third, you know, like not not exactly the very middle, but there there is a point where I I maybe lose a little bit of interest. And part of the reason is this is almost an hour long. It's a 55-minute record. Which yeah, is, which and I don't is, think it changes too much in tone in the second half of this album, which I think kind of dips in, in just the mo in momentum. I do think, like, I would be interested in if, if we had a couple of these songs maybe not on here and cut the time and resequenced it, if that momentum would kind of stay up the whole album or not, because um, there are some some great songs throughout all the way up to the end of the record, but... If that if I had one uh, if I had one just complaint about it I guess would be would be that and I definitely found myself listening to some of the uh, first half more but I mean it definitely did sell me on you know I hear five songs that are all definitely the first four are all kind of kind of bangers in their own right yeah it did make me maybe feel a little more forgiving towards the middle second half when there were things that I found less interesting because I was kind of hyped from, from the, the, for the first half of the record. So, um, yeah, yeah, I, I could go either way, but I'm, I, I ain't too mad at it. Yeah. The next kind of few songs on the album, we have 
She's Long Gone, which is kind of this, uh, you know, grimy uh, guitar heavy song with has this chorus that's reminiscent of Led Zeppelin. Uh, and then it goes into this kind of fuzzy instrumental track called Black Mud, which I quite like. And then the following one kind of falls back on that falsetto again. Uh, the title of that track is called The Only One. And again, I think the falsetto is really effective here. It's a nice way to kind of mix up the kind of the song structures and have there's like a, a sense that provides the melody here. The Only One is a really great song. And maybe it is just because I like the falsetto. <laughs> it just feels different. It, there's a little bit of, I want to say it feels a little like California and the guitar riff. I don't know if that's fair to say, but. Yeah, I think so. The kind of organ synths. I like that song. It's a little long. It's five minutes, but it's I think, still a standout for me. I agree. Yeah, it's one of that's one I have starred as well. I really like the line uh, and the way he delivers, uh, like a ghost, the one that I love most. She disappears when I get near. Like the lyrics on this song quite a bit but it is a nice change of pace again with the the falsetto i, I almost wish he had a, a couple more towards the end that added as well but yeah there's something interesting about the uh the way and i don't you, you can speak more to if, if it's true of all of the black keys music but it is just poetic enough like yeah. it's still blues rock it's still grimy it's kind of straightforward in some ways Mm-hmm. But but that lyric you just quoted is is beautiful, and it's it's a very simple simile or metaphor, right? But uh, it would be a simile because it's like her ass. Uh, <laughs> there's a certain simplicity to the way that they approach songwriting, both in the lyrical content and the the structures and stuff. That's not to denigrate it in any way. I think it's it's really nice. It's a lot of that like kind of more compressed drums and stuff too, where you're not it doesn't. It's not super, uh, like Patrick played the drums pretty hard early on and the drums on the on a lot of these songs kind of have almost a more, I don't know, not, not hip hop feel, but are more in that, that range or not necessarily just like really dynamic and just people banging on stuff. Yeah. Seemed a little, I guess just like tighter is a better way to explain that it's cool when people can pull some of those uh influences and those styles that have been around for years and uh, add something fresh to them uh in this case and similarly i think i think about people like amy winehouse who who did that really well and um you know and broke into more of like a pop the pop scene or whatever late at night I do think that Tencent Pistol, track number nine and track number 10, Sinister Kid, both have, um, I think they're both standout tracks. And the, the first being kind of this bluesy murder ballad uh, type type tune that's different from the, the songs that came before and that I really like. Yeah, the, um, the kind of main guitar riff on Tencent Pistol, I think is really great. 
it's and and again it goes back to the like they found a way to kind of synthesize this blues rock sound and and make it catchy there's something it's i mean this is this isn't a pop song like the way tighten up kind of became but there is something that's just kind of earwormy about that i just think it's great there's just some magic to to what they did on this album Yeah, and I think him following that melody, uh, like the vocals and the guitar lining up there, I think add to the uh, kind of earworm nature that you're talking about. Uh, so I don't, yeah, I don't really love the next song, The Go-Getter. It starts to meander a bit and it feels a little too spacey. And at this point in the record, we're already pretty deep into it. And the momentum of the you know first few songs aren't there as much. But there is this, the next track, I'm Not The One, I do like, and I kind of like how it has this almost cinematic quality with the strings and this really cool bass line that's prominent. Yeah, cinematic is the word I would I would totally use. It feels like a 1970s cop drama or something, or like a slightly noirish mystery. It kind of crawls along, but in this kind of I don't know, it, it's those like strings in the back kind of give it this uh, grandeur or something. But absolutely, the the strings are are the key element there. Totally agree. But the next one that I think I would highlight is uh, the last track on the album, uh, which I didn't haven't spent a ton of time with, uh, just because it being the last track. But over the years, I still think it's one of the stronger ones on on the album. It's called These Days. These There's like a really contemplative pace to it. I think the lyrics are the most personal maybe on the album and the, like the subtle boom of the chorus and, and the lyrics are a real standout here. So yeah, I read an interview with Mark Neal who was, I think he was just an engineer on the album. You know, he was giving some of the backstory that is sort of part of the, the, the mythos behind this album, at least from what I read, is that these guys were pretty close to breaking up before they made Brothers. They just had like some personal differences. Dan like hated Patrick's wife, eventually cheated on Patrick with like his best friend. And Dan had like done a side project of his own, like a solo thing that Patrick wasn't happy about. And so I think this song was written mostly by Patrick, kind of in this in-between time, like before they actually recorded the album. And it was like after Patrick's 
marriage fell apart before they had kind of got like reconciled and got back in the studio to make this album. So when you talk about it being maybe the most personal, it, it you know, it stems from some real life shit. That yeah. Went down for sure. <laughs> Yeah, so one thing that I, I think separates this album, and, and we talked about it a little bit, but just um, the production's quite different from their earlier stuff. And so you have, I feel like a lot of their instrumentation still has this kind of looseness, I guess, to it, but the, the production and uh, the techniques really make it seem tight um, and make these songs kind of come alive and break into the pop sphere, I guess. Whatever it is, they definitely took some production direction from Danger Mouse here. A lot of uh, Danger Mouse other productions sounds very similar. And even like the Michael Kiwanuka album that we that we discussed on the podcast last year, that there's a lot of crossover in some of these sounds as well. Absolutely. Um, and I don't know a ton about Danger Mouse, but um, just from listening to their previous album and like some of the more kind of country slide guitar and stuff that they, they introduced there. It's just, it's clear that they're, um, the influence is there. They're at least getting out of their comfort zone or trying new things for sure. Yeah. On social, I was putting out the fact that we were going to cover this album and a couple of different people said that, you know, the Black Keys and specifically this album were like huge influences on them. Some of them are musicians, some of them are just music fans. A buddy of mine from high school, his name's Patrick Madigan, sent me this. Uh, he says, so for me, Brothers came out, and I remember starting getting into blues music a bit, the kind of deep south, dark-sounding blues rock music. I had always grown up as a classic rock fan as well, but it always felt like a genre of music that belonged more or less to our parents' generation because there weren't many artists our age we're producing new music similar to those genres, at least that I was aware of. And he says that I remember listening to the Black Keys early on here and there, but when Brothers came out, it tied it all together and it was a band that was for our generation. And I thought it was really cool. I can pretty much get into any music where you can feel the artist's passion and creative process through the music. And I think that that's why the Black Keys and specifically Brothers is one of my all-time favorites. Nice. I know the Black Keys probably not this particular record but had gotten me to dive much deeper into different blues music that either just didn't excite me before or I just wasn't exposed to before they had the same effect on a lot of people so even even just for that I think it's um you know it's really cool so what's their best album <laughs> I don't know those first that first three those that run is, is super strong and it's it's different but it's I don't know if I could pick a favorite. <laughs> All right, well, I'll dive in and I'll let you know. Yeah, come come back next time and have have a favorite from the first three, Ooh. and then and then make an ultimate decision, I guess. Okay.
Get out of the dirty, grimy blues rock and get into some dirty, grimy sci-fi pop and et cetera. other, etc. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. Let's go on to Janelle Monae's The Ark Android. The Ark Android is the debut major label feature length album from Janelle Monet. Narratively, it is a continuation of the sci-fi epic she began with her first EP called Metropolis, which tells the story of Cindy Mayweather, an android that falls in love with a human and becomes a fugitive savior who seeks freedom for all cybernetic beings to love freely. This album is comprised of two suites they each function like different chapters in the story. So her first EP, Metropolis, was chapter one, and this album essentially makes up chapters two and three, with her next album that came out in 2013, The Electric Lady, rounds out suites or chapters four and five. So The Arc Android is slightly difficult to categorize because it's just so vast and ambitious in its musical styles, its themes, and references to other works of art. It's like if you took Stevie Wonder, Star Wars, David Bowie, Blade Runner, Outkast, Willy Wonka, Afrofuturism, Madonna, Prince, I mean, all these other things, and blended them together. But even that doesn't really do it justice. Given all the different ingredients and influences, coupled with Janelle Monet's ambitious vision, this album could easily have been a mess of narratives, tones, musical styles. But to Janelle Monet's credit, it plays out as a pretty tight, fun, thematically rich and musically dense and interesting narrative. Its tracks blend seamlessly into one another in an experience that is intended to be consumed in one sitting at the edge of your seat as you follow the story of this dystopian future through cinematic overtures, vogue pop bops, psychedelic dancey garage rock songs, hymnal narrative ballads and funky get down jams. So Brandon, is, is there any album like this? Yeah, I think it definitely, like you said, the, the kind of the, or this character is close to like a Ziggy Stardust. I think there are definitely albums that have the concept format with a main character at the center that kind of falls into maybe a more sci-fi lane um, and presents itself as either this like art pop or art rock. But I don't know of many that kind of just pull all of these sorts of influences together. and Somehow it just seems really effortless to her like she sound if you played me any one of these songs alone I, I wouldn't think it I'd be like that could be her sound all the time sort of thing like and I would I would believe that and she's got a ton of style is genre hopping all over this thing but like you said it's held together by some really really cool themes and there's a lot to unpack here and I didn't even this is a much deeper dive than I've ever taken and I've listened to this album quite a bit I own the CD and kind of had a similar situation where it was another kind of summer stunner that I listened to a lot and always understood the theatricality there. And I remember seeing her when she kind of broke through in that David Letterman performance. That was really fun. 
and had pulled elements that our generation kind of knew from Outcast and how kind of theatrical Andre 3000 is, but still was entirely its own thing. So uh, all of this to say it's a debut, you know, full length album, which I think is pretty spectacular. And like you said, has like this futuristic sound, but pulls from just a plethora of influences that it's just a really fun album that you can unpack. And then she keeps on going to make some more concept records. So I am stoked to get into this with you. This is the first Janelle Monae album I've done a deep dive on. I first became aware of her because she collaborated on that song with Fun. Do you remember that? Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and then, I, you know, I, I knew she was around, but I just never really got into the music. Um, she's been in some movies that I really love. Yeah. And obviously, Dirty Computer was a, was a big album of the last couple of years. Um, but I haven't even really done a deep dive on that, although I have listened to it. And yeah, I, I, I was just blown away at the the kind of scope of this record and, and how she was able to kind of pull off this juggling act of all these different themes and styles and, and references and, um, you know, tell a story that at the end was pretty meaningful, I think. And, and obviously the, the specific narrative kind of continues with, with her next album, which I haven't really listened to much. But, um, you know, I... I appreciate when when artists, specifically musicians, look at themselves as more of storytellers than rock stars or, you know, pop stars or whatever. She clearly is a sci-fi fan after my own heart. (laughs) The tones and and the the language that she uses is just so familiar to me because I love sci-fi movies and, and video games and stuff. Yeah, it's funny. I've been reading, I started Saga and I've read the first two volumes and some of that imagery i could just see this sort of album play out in in similar worlds so it's just it was fun to think about a lot of these songs in that way that i really haven't thought about them and before yeah totally well so before we dive into the arc android i do i want to pull up metropolis which is her first ep okay and let's just listen to this the first song off of that because it really kind of sets the table for who this character is and the world she lives in. And and for me, gave context to the rest of her music throughout, you know, the story of, of Metropolis and this character. What I like about this, you said you've been reading Saga, and so that's like a, a sci-fi touchstone for you. I've been playing Final Fantasy, and this music sounds exactly like Final Fantasy fight music. <laughs> Good morning, Cyboys and Cybergirl. I'm happy to announce that we have a star-crossed winner in today's Heartbreak Sweepstakes. Android number 57821, otherwise known as Cindy Mayweather, has fallen desperately in love with a human named Anthony Greendown. Do you know the rules? She is now scheduled for immediate disassembly. Bounty hunters, you can find her in the Neon Valley Street District on the fourth floor at the Leopard Plaza apartment complex. The droid control marshals are full of fun rules today. No phasers, only chainsaws and electro daggers. Remember, only card-carrying hunters can join our chase today. And as usual, there will be no reward until her cyber soul is turning to the Star Commission. Happy hunting! So this song kind of functions like the opening of a musical theater production or something, right? It, it just kind of sets, very, very literally sets the stage. And the whole Metropolis EP is pretty literal in its storytelling. You know, the next song, which is called violet stars happy hunting starts i'm an alien from outer space you know i'm a cyber girl without a face <laughs> I- i'm a 
So it's, it's, it's very first person, it's very expository. And the rest of this first EP, Metropolis, is pretty literal in its storytelling. And, and even its musicality. And I think it's pretty good. And it also jumps genres a little bit and is kind of a, a nice precursor to the Arc Android. But it is pretty mind blowing how the, the, the feature length album takes these ideas and the, the musicality of, of this and blows it up like times infinity. It's just, <laughs> just on such a different scale it's great so that that gives a little context and then we can jump right into the arc android yeah so after her kind of earlier work there you start off with the beginning of this album is a, a sweet two and this album covers sweet two and sweet three the first track is really just setting the the atmosphere and this uh has just really strong world building from the start here i mean this is a real ass movie score dude like this sounds <laughs> legit right yeah <laughs> from the wavy strings to as you get further it's got those like vocal stabs from the choir mm -hmm. it, it just like it's dude this is this is sci-fi i'm i'm into it from day one or from song yeah. i guess <laughs> it kind of it sets you up for what you're about to get into for sure so um yeah after that that first overture uh it goes into Dance or Die, featuring Saul Williams. Cyborg, Android, D-Boy, Decoy, Water, Wisdom, Tightrope, Vision, Insight, Stronghold, Hardness, Ice Cold, Mystery, Mastery, Solar, Solar. Some will pull the gun because they want to be stars. Snatching up your life into the blink of an eye. And if you see your cloning on the street walking by, keep it running for your life because only one will survive. Boys in the streets and it's an eye for an eye. And so, so this song is very, feels very vogue to me, right? Kind of high art, high pop, but the, the lyrical content is still talking about cyborgs, androids. You could kind of miss some of that because it's coming at you light speed because she's has this cadence that kind of doesn't, doesn't stop. And it's actually, it's really impressive. It's like, it's, you know, she's practically rapping here with like pretty incredible diction. Yeah, and she has a musical theater background. I mean, she is kind of a, I would say triple threat, but I think she's more than that, right? Like she is just classically yeah. trained in almost every facet of, of entertainment. I just think that, I think the bass is so cool on this track. I think she comes in sounding so cool and the way she's kind of interacting with the, with the bass and hi-hat, it's got this like, Obviously there's some hip hop influence in here too, and even some Afrobeat influence, but it just kind of brings this world to life. And uh, it's pretty stacked with narrative and themes from like, from our first actual song with her on it here. Right, and, and that's something that we'll see as we go through this album is it's unlike her first EP, there is, there's a lot more abstraction to the storytelling, right? It's less expository and more about moments and character and, and uh, themes and feelings. And so like this one is kind of setting, setting a tone of the world we live in rather than any one character doing anything really. It's, it's almost revolutionary in terms of, it's like Footloose, like dancing uh, against the man, right? <laughs> right. And another, I'm glad you mentioned kind of the uh, the Afrobeat of it because one thing that's really stunning, I think, about this whole album is kind of the the way it centers the sci-fi storytelling around specifically themes that 
affect more specifically kind of black and brown communities, right? And so it's a pretty common thing for sci-fi stories to be told about white people, white men uh, often. And um, this is just a great way to, to broaden uh, the accessibility of a genre. Yeah, so one thing I picked up uh, was pretty cool is there's a um, book called World Building and published by Amsterdam University Press. And one of the like essays or chapters in here, um, they're all like by different authors, but there's one called The Politics of World Building, Heteroglossia in Janelle Monet's Afrofuturist Wonderland. And there's a part that kind of explains, I think, Afrofuturism in a cool way. So I think it helps and might help the listeners uh, maybe understand a little bit about what the Afrofuturist movement was. But uh, it says, while the paradigmatic uh, imaginary worlds of The Lord of the Rings and Star Trek have resulted in a generic tendency in fantasy and sci-fi, towards politically reactionary forms of cultural nostalgia, technocratic notions of progress, or combinations of both. More progressive alternatives have emerged that have taken world building in productive new directions. One such phenomenon has been the modest but influential revival of Afrofuturism, the cultural movement that emerged among black artists, authors, and musicians in the 1960s and 1970s as speculative uh, fiction that treats African-American themes and addresses African-American concerns in the context of 20th century technoculture. The Afrofuturist project took it upon itself to uh, appropriate sci-fi imagery, which had been overwhelmingly white in its mainstream cultural representations, and used it to reimagine a past as well as a future in which people of color played central rather than marginal roles. From the elaborate mythology articulated by avant-garde jazz musician Sun Ra, to the spectacular stage show of 1970s bands like Parliament, Funkadelic, Earth, Wind, and Fire, and Afrofuturist culture has adopted and expanded upon um, many familiar sci-fi tropes. So I just thought that was, that was a good, good kind of like baseline for taking these uh, themes, like you said, and putting them in something. This was specifically talking about some of the 1960s and 70s, but how she's done that in a really cool way on this on this album yeah she's like continuing to carry that torch for sure again i think the this has a really strong first few like a run up here that keeps your attention from uh dance or die the following song is called faster again there's some afrobeat influence on this track they just feel jam-packed with information with instrumentation and it can fly by and you're having a good time and not really be pulling apart in these themes and stuff which has been really fun to do because there's a lot in here every day the density of this on top of it just being enjoyable music makes it it's just so rich right like you can enjoy it on a surface level but there's so much to delve into it, it's just kind of what the best art is made of yeah and that following track uh, again is a uh, called locked inside, I'm locked inside a land called foolish pride where the man is always right he hates to talk but loves to fight is that all really dancey with 
kind of rock with you Michael Jackson elements and it's another one I had specifically said I can kind of feel that that saga-esque world and would be really cool to have visuals too. I get a lot of Stevie Wonder vibes in this too right right before she gets into that chorus. Yeah, I mean, these two tracks, Faster and Locked Inside, are, are kind of very, you know, first person from the point of view of, of that of that character that, that is at the center of all of this. It's, it's just kind of starting to build this narrative of being trapped and, and on the run. You know, the, the kind of overall story here is that the Ark Android, it's almost like the Archangel. It's 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 kind of a heavenly uh, reference. And uh, this this Android, Cindy Mayweather, kind of starting to realize she's somewhat of a messiah, like a savior that's gonna come and, and uh, try to save fellow androids from whoever's in charge, right? The government, the, the machine, the man. And so, so what you'll see throughout all of this is it starts, uh, it starts with persecution. There's somewhat of an enlightenment in the next couple of songs, and then uh, there's also some new tracks between her and other characters. And uh, by the end, it's 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 almost like there's an ascendance. So that's that's a quick breakdown of of kind of the arc that we're going to see as we go through this. Yeah, I really I love these next. Um... These next three tracks with Sir Greendown, who we uh, kind of get introduced to, we have Cold War and then Tightrope. And Cold War and, and Tightrope are, are two of the, the bigger songs from the album. But starting with Sir Greendown, there's this kind of fairy tale love quality to it that, uh, by way of this like Moon River melody, and right. it's, it's kind of just a nice. Nice breather from the first chunk of this album. If we were watching something, this would be a, a scene scene change. Absolutely, it, it's uh, it's in very the theater dramatic. production of this. T totally, <laughs> which could also be amazing. I think <laughs> I would love to see some adaptation of of this into like a full visual. Like obviously, she did music videos, but like a beginning to end visual medium of this in some yeah. world would be fucking cool. I agree. So it, when Cold War comes up, we're kind of off to the races again. There's like this recognizable kind of bombs over Baghdad beat yep. and momentum. It really captures this kind of internal Cold War that she's, this character's going through. This is a cold Yeah, and some of the themes here, you know, center around both the kind of persecution of people of color and, and kind of like a history of, of like slavery and stuff, but also um, since Janelle Monae is a gay artist also, there's tones about the experience of being a gay person in, in society, you know, especially when you think about what the Cold War was, it was mostly a quote unquote war of just like hate without actual physical combat. Right, right. Right, so it's more of an ideological war. For um, sure. And uh, yeah, I, I love, it, it sounds just like Bombs Over Baghdad, but still <laughs> has its own uh, life to it. And it's Absolutely. great. And it's and it's perfect because on Tightrope, the next track, there's, there's Big Boy. <laughs> yeah, he comes in. And uh, this is the, the popular, uh, kind of most recognizable song from the record. Some people talk about you like they know all about you. When you get down, they doubt you. 
has this like kind of marching band feel to it and has I thought the, like some of the things I'd noticed that I really hadn't noticed before were some of the backing vocals and kind of accents even these just like little sections there's one that pops up that's like this acoustic or I think it's a ukulele that comes in for a little bit and then it comes back in at the end but just a really bouncy fun track you know Janelle Monet came on the scene and she was wearing these tuxedos with these like really cool like bow ties and she had such a interesting look this kind of androgynous look you know she's doing these like James Brown dance moves and stuff I mean she mm -hmm. kind of started maybe not started but she she really was a big predecessor to what like Leon Bridges was able to do with playing a certain style of music that is more of a throwback right that's the pages homage to decades past it, it's still very much a it feels still like a modern pop song also certainly and and this song specifically i mean it it's connects thematically to the rest but it, it definitely does feel like we need a hit <laughs> so so let's make sure there's at least a a radio song on this you know broad or maybe not broad very specific concept album track number nine is called oh maker it's one of my favorite tracks on the album i hear the drizzle of the rain it's falling from my it starts off with a a line that pays homage to Simon and Garfunkel, and the beat is a sample of Simon and Garfunkel. This is just like kind of a a more traditional pop love song, kind of a ballad almost. You know, it kind of follows the more uh, more traditional pop structure. Yeah, it's interesting. It pulls in like the folk elements, like you said, with the Simon and Garfunkel bits. But I think there's a really vivid imagery and strong lyrics in this track and her vocal performance is really cool and it's just a fresh uh we haven't heard this style from her up until this point when she goes into that uh like pre-chorus or maybe it's the chorus it's great i'm really lost baby i, I just I think, <laughs> I think it's so good and it and it especially with with the chorus because it is slightly more traditionally pop, it does really sell the fact that she can just straight up sing a good song, right? A lot of these, the rest of the album is very good and she's just straight up singing really good on this one rather yeah, than yeah. some of the earlier tracks. There's nothing wrong with her vocals, but it's it's other other um, aspects of the, those songs maybe take the four in, at certain points and she just fucking kills it on this one. Yeah, agreed. The next track is called Come Alive, War of the Roses, and there's a frantic nature to this. Really dramatic. There's a ton of character to the vocals here. Yeah, I, I love this song. From a narrative perspective, this is somewhat of a metamorphosis. She's kind of coming to a realization and changing. From a musical's perspective, I don't think it's a sample. It's probably more of an interpolation of Rock Lobster by the B-52s, right? That that guitar riff. Yeah. <laughs> she just like loses control and sells it. Like she's a performer. Like this yeah, is a absolutely performance.
And then I, I think that the screaming kind of more towards the end of this is super chilling. And especially there's a point where her voice connected to the sound of the, the, the guitar is making and this really like kind of high pitched scream and it's pretty nuts, really yeah. chilling. She like screams. Oh, it's great. And then it flows into this next track, which is quite different. It's more of a uh, psychedelic trip kind of sounding song. It, it, it honestly just matches the, the title of the song, just called Mushrooms and Roses. Uh, it reminds me of like a rosy um, psychedelic journey, and it has like a uh, pretty cool guitar solo. Yeah, it's almost like it's. It makes me think of Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds or something like this. Just kind of uh, yeah, yeah. It's it's an acid trip, right? <laughs> <laughs> and that's the conclusion. Of the the first suite uh, and or sorry, suite number two, which is the first half of this album. And then side two is suite number three, where we have um, the suite three overture and another you know string heavy introduction to this next part of the album. Yeah, that cinematic. Totally, super cinematic. So after that sweet number three overture, it goes into track number 13, Neon Valley Street. So I'll be honest, I like this whole album, but I really love sweet number two, which is the first chunk. Yeah. I have less notes on this one, but I do just like, I just like grooving with it. Yeah, I really love, I think this is a standout track. I love this song. Um, I think because of, it reminds me of Lauren Hill. Like her vocal delivery here too, and it has that kind of laid back nature to it. This one's about like uh, Cindy Mayweather, I think being like an outlaw uh, at this point, but it's just a really nice song. The way you are now, you're never gonna make the Even though you've got to Android dream of electric sheep under your pillow. Make the bus featuring of Montreal. I think is the only track on here that she, uh, Janelle Monet actually doesn't have a writing credit. But it, I mean, it's so in line with, you know, everything she's put together with the themes and stuff. The uh, There's a very specific uh, reference to Dreaming of Electric Sheep, which is the uh, reference to the book that Blade Runner is based on. So, and I think I think of Blade Runner throughout this whole album. It's, it's yeah. a huge touchstone for me, so. Um, I like the song. I like Make the Bus. Yeah, I, I really love uh, Say You'll Go. I think that the she kind of has like a really classic vocal style on this mixed with this R&B sound. Um, I think it's a beautiful track with beautiful sentiment and kind of envelops you kind of towards the end here because it's a pretty long track. Honestly, I think it's maybe one of the more poetic tracks also. For sure. I love the lyrics. Love is not a fantasy. Fantasy, 
think it's interpolating uh, Claire de Lune on, on the, towards the end of this track too. Yes, it is. I love that piece of music too. And I think the way she's pulling these, um, some of the older tracks she pulls in here, I think she ties them in just really, really effectively. Yeah, and that piece, Claire de Lune, it's got such an otherworldly quality as it is, right? And it's it's just another example of how she, she's bringing all these different elements in, you know, from, from the sci-fi stuff, the pop elements, even some of the classic, like the British rock and even Simon and Garfunkel, and something like this that is just has this timeless element that, that fits within these themes so beautifully. It's just great. Yeah, I agree. And these last two tracks are very long. Um, one being six minutes and then the last one being eight minutes and 48 seconds. And is like a kind of has three parts to it. I love Papaya. A bold way to end an album. I kind of picture this this character ascending into the heavens. I think at this point, she's kind of realized her destiny, I think is is kind of the arc of the narrative. And, and she she understands that she's the the one that's gonna save her kind. Metropolis, yeah. And um, I, just, I just love kind of tilting my head back, closing my eyes and just kind of getting lost in it because it's just this ocean of, of sound. Yeah, and I love the, the bossa nova elements to it. And it's very kind of theatrical in nature, but but like you said, uh, it is really her musical theater background is really apparent, and it's she just performs so much on all of these tracks, not like overperforms, but pulls these kind of narrative elements in that way that keeps you engaged. I think is really cool because this is a very it's an hour and eight minute album with 18 tracks. There's a lot packed in here, and I you know, stayed engaged to the end. I I think I often with pop music, specifically on albums, have a harder time sometimes not getting tired of it by the end because a lot of times there's kind of these compressed vocals that sound, sound the same with a lot of the same kind of delivery, even if the, you know, songs and productions and melodies are changing throughout the album. But she offers us so much variety and her vocal style and she's so dynamic all over this album that I think a lot of that keeps you, pulls you in and keeps you engaged. Similarly to how like a, um, a, a musical or something would have a little bit more talky music elements and then go into big grand pieces and kind of have a bunch of different styles of, of singing throughout. Yeah, just thinking about how this is essentially a debut. It's her first feature length album right she had the metropolis ep right beforehand but i mean what a bold way to introduce yourself to the world right uh, yeah i just i just to piggyback off that it's just a wildly ambitious album and for it to be your introduction to the world is is pretty pretty amazing i think yeah and it's it's no wonder that she's gone on to do have just such an interesting career so far she's you know She's in one of my favorite movies, Moonlight. That was her acting debut, film debut, supporting roles in like Hidden Figures. She is starring in the newly released season two of Homecoming on Amazon Prime. And I think before the COVID-19 shutdown, she had her first leading role in a film uh, was, was set to be released and I think is getting pushed. On top of her album, Dirty Computer, was is you know considered one of the best of of the last 
few years for certainly, if not maybe the decade. And uh, she's just clearly an artist that is A, wildly talented, B, only getting started, it seems like. And uh, I'm, I'm fascinated to see what she is going to continue to do because clearly she's got stories to tell that don't always adhere to a specific tropes and, and norms of, of the medium, right? Yeah, this was wildly different than anything else that was coming out, especially in the pop world. And I don't know of anything really much like it since it since this has come out. And um, yeah, I remember I saw one of my favorite and most memorable concerts uh, of my life was seeing Prince in Chicago. He did a, a run of three shows in this like after party thing in, in Chicago at United Center called the Welcome to Chicago Tour. And I mean, obviously Prince Prince was amazing. He played for a really long time and over those three nights played wildly different set lists and it's just a really cool experience. But Janelle Monet opened for him. She's been, you know, tied to Prince and a lot of her music over the past ten years has been influenced by him. But it was really cool to see someone that was just this was in 2012 and someone coming up uh, who kind of had that same energy and talent and just seemed like a, a level of performing that someone like Prince had. And obviously Prince saw that too and brought her along. Her stage shows and um, productions have, are, are really cool, but it was just obviously a special night, but it was, she had gone on from there to do obviously headline shows of her own and stuff and she's talked a lot about her, her relationship with prince she has a really cool story of kind of jamming for hours and hours with him um, that thing's really special it was on the most uh she had a recent interview on fresh air with terry gross and it was really cool and she shares that story so i recommend checking that out as well yeah so that track make me feel from dirty computer just seems like it came straight um from the prince line of uh and her carrying that torch so totally and that was one of my favorite songs of 2018 yeah I, i'm really excited i i just realized that they're doing do you know the series 33 and a third i have heard of it yeah it's like a book series collection that they kind of do they have new releases of and they all fall under this uh 33 and a third i guess they're like the what they'd be called the publisher but Anyways, that's the name of the collection. And so each book is based on like an album, like a, usually they're, you know, the big influential albums and uh, they kind of all have different formats. Some are much better than others, but they might cover an album in, in a way that's just like a long essay, or it might be going through more of the tracks, or it could be um, even some like fictionalized uh, stuff too, which it's interesting, but they're they're publishing one on the Art Android in 2021 that, that I'll be picking up and excited to read. Oh, that's awesome. I can't wait to dive into that. And yeah, we'll, we can link in the show notes to the Fresh Air podcast, as well as uh, there's a blog post. Uh, the blog is called The Eruditorum Press, and this writer named Elizabeth Sandifer did wrote a short guide to Janelle Monet and the Metropolis saga, which was hugely helpful, at least for me, and kind of parsing through these uh, tracks and previous albums and stuff to to understand what's going on because it is so dense and and uh, you know there's a lot going on for sure. Well, um, Brandon, now that we've covered 
these two albums from 10 years ago, do you have any happy tears either just in diving in recently or any time in the last 10 years connected to either of these artists or these albums? Yeah, I, I really on the Brothers album, that the content on Unknown Brother is, is really tragic and, and sad. So there's that emotional element there. But I think on the last track, something about its tone being different and more personal and kind of what I what we talked about the contemplative just slower pace and instrumentation of the track was my really only close call on the on the album. No, that's great. <laughs> and for the and for the listeners who close call is just when it's not quite it's not quite creeping up in it's just whoo that was a close call you know. <laughs> and then on um, Arc Android there is. Let's see. On that Neon Valley Street, had some creeping tears kind of in specific moments, uh, kind of around that, made a song reach your heart. It's a, the two characters are apart from each other and Cindy's kind of calling out in this way. And then also just on that Say You'll Go, that kind of whole ending segment, kind of the second half of that song, I just think, I think I used the word enveloping, but that's what it feels like it, it is. And it's had creeping, creeping tears during uh, that segment as well. Yeah, um, for me, I'm trying to remember specifically, I should have written it down, and it was just kind of, it was more of a close call than anything, but I got kind of emotional. It might have been during Mushrooms and Roses, which isn't even like (laughs) the most emotional song or anything. It's a a pretty lovey song. Right, but it's more kind of psychedelic and trippy. But Mm -hmm. I I think I I just got kind of caught up in thinking about the the arc of this character and, and how she is coming to realize that that she's kind of got a destiny and that she's got a higher purpose and and um you know she like she's a savior she's she is someone that is going to help people and um and, and since mushrooms and roses seems to be kind of part of this metamorphosis this change this realization and um <clears throat> connecting that to some of the things that Janelle Monet writes about in the experience of being a person of color specifically in America and and how how it's just so much more difficult than for people like me because of the privileges that I have and and um, thinking about I think that that realization that you could be a, a person of change um, to bring your people out of suffering was was uh, moving to me but I think that's well, it I'm here well two great albums I'm very glad that that you convinced me to to go through these not that it took much convincing but you, it was your idea. <laughs> Um, this is great. And I, I, I think I'm just going to continue to, uh, specifically with the Arc Android, like the more I'll listen to it, I think there's just more takeaways to be found and gleaned and, uh, I'll never get over how much fun Brothers is. So, yeah. And, and for those who haven't kind of gone back into Black Keys earlier music, I think, um, definitely worth checking out those and, and obviously worth continuing this series uh that janelle monet has with the electric lady uh and then dirty computer i actually think i i prefer both electric lady and arc android to dirty computer just as a whole but i think it has some really great tracks on it though but i'll probably do the same sort of thing with the electric lady soon as well so maybe we make a podcast out of it <laughs> who knows at least touch upon it for sure at least touch upon it all right nick well another uh distance podcast here we did it become zoom boys we we are official zoom boys 
Thank you for listening to Happy Tears. Happy Tears is produced by Nick Melita and Brandon Henry. You can find more information as well as this episode's show notes at happytearspod.com. Be sure to follow us on all the social media platforms, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, etc. If you like what you hear, you could go ahead and give us a, a fancy little rating on Apple Podcasts. That helps us grow and find more listeners just like you to enjoy what we do. Uh, original theme music by Homage. You can find his music at youtube.com slash homage beats or follow homage beats on Instagram. Uh, we've got a nice little playlist called Happy Tears Mixtape on Spotify. Give that a follow. We add music that we love and discuss on the podcast onto that playlist for your enjoyment. So check it out. This has been a podcast. That podcast is called Happy Tears. You have listened to it. I'm trying to do the- It is uh, time now to say <laughs> farewell. Farewell. <laughs> Thank you.